Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning as we continue our study in Luke's wonderful truths about our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll begin in verse 19. That's found on page 879 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you want to follow along there. And of course, uh, you perhaps know that the song we just sang was uh, penned some 500 years ago by a man named Martin Luther. Of course, that same man on October 31st, 1517, be 500 years ago in two days, began what historians have now called the Protestant Reformation. And we had a great delight, many of us this morning, considering how God worked through Luther. And we give thanks to God for the reform that he brought about in the church as Luther led others to rediscover the lost gospel and bring it back to his people and the gospel that we will rejoice in this morning as we consider God's Word. So Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. Hear now the Word of God. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he told them this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Our Father, we are thankful now that we could come and consider your word by your grace. We pray that the Spirit would come and help and guide and lead. That, Father, we might know Christ more faithfully through his teaching. That we might see him more clearly. Behold his glory for us, to us, through your Spirit. That our lives might be conformed more to his likeness. We long to draw near to you through your word. And so come now, let your spirit fall heavy upon this place in our hearts, giving us hearts to rejoice in these truths and minds to understand it, will to obey it gladly. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. It was in the year 6 A.D., that a man named Judas of Galilee, or sometimes called Judas the Galilean, led a revolt against the Roman Empire. He had an armed insurrection that he instigated because of the Roman poll tax. This was a tax that Israelites would pay every year, not on goods and services, not on income. They would pay it simply for the right to live in their own land. This was so offensive to this man named Judas that he proclaimed a Jewish state saying that we recognize no king but God alone. 
and with an armed band, he went from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And there Judas, with his armed men, would cleanse the temple. Not by getting rid of the market, as did Jesus, but by getting rid of the Romans. Armed men kicking the Romans out. And he finally called on all Jews to refuse to pay this Roman tax. The historian Josephus said Judas called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay taxes to the Romans and putting up with mortal masters instead of God. Well, as you can imagine, Rome doesn't take too kindly to when you don't pay taxes. And so they quickly amass an army, easily put down the revolt, and publicly executed Judas. About 30 years later, Jesus now, from Galilee, interestingly enough, having cleansed the temple, interestingly enough, is speaking here in the temple. And they are still talking about this tax issue. In fact, they're still talking about Judas the Galilean. You can read about him in Acts chapter 5, interestingly enough. It seems that this memory, especially the fact that Judas was quickly handled by the Romans, that the Jewish leaders have now come to Jesus once again to trap him. This will be the second of the three traps that they will lay before the feet of Christ there during the Passion Week, a verbal snare hoping that will lead to Jesus' demise. You remember last week, I hope, that they came to Jesus trying to trap him with the question, what authority do you have to cleanse this temple? Why, why do you think you could rule this temple as if it is your home, undo everything we've done when God has put us in charge of this temple? Well, Jesus does not take the bait, remember? Instead, he humiliates them in front of everyone, and he tells them, goes on to tell a parable, implicating that they are wicked servants of God's people who will soon be removed from their position of power and judged. Now, they, they, they were not very pleased with that parable. In fact, they wanted to arrest Jesus right then and there, as you see in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. This is the second time we're told that Jesus is too popular to just go out and arrest. We saw this in chapter 19, verse 47 as well. And And so they can't get a hold of him, but they're going to try again. This will try now a second time. God willing, we'll see in the coming weeks their third attempt. But this this attempt is interesting to consider in light of not just Luke's gospel, but Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark add a little description that is helpful, I think, for us to understand that those who were seeking to capture Jesus were two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians working together in order to lay their hands on Jesus. Now, the Pharisees hated Rome, hated everything to do with Rome. The Herodians, as their name implies, they loved Rome. They, they found their allegiance to Rome, um, afforded them a certain amount of privilege and wealth, and so they liked Rome. They wanted to keep everything the same. Pharisees wanted to overthrow Rome. And now these two groups are working together. It'd be like Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders palling it up. Or maybe Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton joining forces, right? Um, They're joining in order to capture Jesus. It's just one more proof that the gospel unites, right? Though not always in the way we think. As they come together, they think we'll get Jesus. The first time they try to get him, they said, we'll talk about religion. Here they come and 
And they said, well, let's talk about politics. Let's see if that gets them. You know, of course, uh, you want to start a fight. You talk about religion or you talk about politics, right? Now, you want to start a war. You talk about religion in politics, which is exactly what they're going to do. They want a war with the Holy One of God. They want to kill the author of life. So they slither up to him and they throw their net at Jesus' feet, hoping this time he'll answer their question. And by the way, he will. And in doing so, he'll expose their hypocrisy. And when we get to the end of the story, he will leave everyone so amazed that even his enemies will marvel at his response. A response that is no more than 11 words and has for centuries. These 11 words cause philosophers, let me try again, philosophers and theologians alike to debate, to think, to write books, an answer that I think provides amazing insight that we'll consider today about how you and I as followers of Christ live as dual citizens, citizens of America, perhaps, and then, of course, citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, they're going to come to Jesus, um, they're going to come at him very differently. Remember last time, they They got on their robes, the whole delegation, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They all marched to the temple with all their authority to confront Jesus. And and that authoritative confrontation did not work. So this time they're going to send spies to do their dirty work, as you see in verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. So as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. And so the leaders are pulling the strings from backstages. The spies come up. They think we'll pretend to be his followers. And, and, and they even try to butter Jesus up before they even ask the question. So you see in verse 21. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. They're flattering him, aren't they? Teacher, you're always right, they say. Teacher, you don't play favorites, they say. Teacher, you show us the, the way of God, they say. I, I don't know if you can't, if you could hear the serpent's lisp in their flattery. Flattery is just the reverse of gossip, isn't it? Gossip's what you say behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery being something you say to their face that you would, of course, never say behind their back. And it is equally heinous. David once said of the flatterer, his speech was smooth as butter. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet, the, yet they were drawn swords. Or consider Proverbs 29. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. And that's what they're doing. They're coming to, to put a net before Jesus. A, 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 a poison flattery is that people are often eager to take. In fact, you know who's especially susceptible to flattery? His preachers are. And people who are in the public eye, you know, I'll, I'll just let you into a little secret that uh, preachers, when you flatter them and have kind words for them, they'll, they'll often feign humility. You know, preachers will say something like, well, what you say, of course, is not true, um, but tell me more. Right? Charles Spurgeon was so aware of this danger, he said to his congregation, I cannot afford to love your praise lest I should fear your scorn. I think their hope is Jesus is equally susceptible. So they set him up. Jesus, you only tell the truth. 
Jesus, you're not afraid of hard questions. Jesus, you give it to us straight. Of course, that's all true. But they offer false praise in order to get to their question, or should we say, in order to lay their net, as you see in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Talking about tribute here, they're referring to taxes, but this is, this is not any old tax. This is a very particular tax called the tribute. Sometimes it's called the poll tax. And the Jews especially hated this tax, and not like the Tea Party hates taxes. I mean, this was an explosive tax. This was a, the head tax, a tax on every Jewish male that every Jewish male would have to pay every year for the privilege of being a subject of Caesar. They would pay, regardless of your income, one denarius, which was equal to about a day's labor for an unskilled worker. So let's just say for a round number, about $100. Once a year, every Jewish man would pay $100, and it would be paid directly into Caesar's coffer. They despised this tax so much, as we saw earlier, that this tax started a revolution when Jesus was just a boy in 6 AD. It would lead to another revolution in 66 AD. You see, taxes are often the cause of revolutions, as we know even in our own nation's history. And so they come and say, should we pay taxes to the invader, to the oppressor? Now, you see, this question puts Jesus in a bind. And they are aware of it. That's why they're asking him it. I think they're very pleased with themselves. They see no way out of this, right? Because the, either, either way he answers yes or no, he's going to get in trouble. He's not going to emerge unscathed. For he says, no, don't pay your taxes to Caesar. Well, the Herodians are going to sprint to Pilate and say, we got another one. This time it's a man named Jesus. And, and you need to put him down. You need to kill him. In fact, this will be the very thing they will accuse Jesus of doing. You know, keep your finger here in Luke 20 and just turn over one page to Luke 23. And this is when they, they bring Jesus before Pilate. And they'll lie about Jesus, as you'll, I'll show you in a moment. But look in verse 1, uh, Luke 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying... We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Which is, of course, a direct contradiction of what Jesus will actually do. But they think this is such a winning issue, they're willing to lie about him. Because they think if if we tell Pilate that he says don't pay, certainly Rome will put him down. Rome will kill him. So they say, no, don't pay. He's going to get killed. But what if he says, yes, pay your taxes? Well, then his followers will realize he's a fraud. Or at least a coward. I mean, for three years, all we've heard about is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. I'm bringing the kingdom of God. He's even received the open praise as the Messiah, the coming king. And the only reason the Pharisees haven't killed him by now is because of his popularity. And so he says, pay the taxes. He's going to lose that popularity real fast, leaving him in the hands of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are, are, are hoping for a yes, pay your taxes, they'll turn the nation against him. The Herodians are hoping for a no, don't pay your taxes, he'll turn Rome against him. Either way, Jesus gets arrested and executed. He's trapped, at least in their mind. But here's the thing about trapping Jesus. It's not as easy as you might think. He's not easily trapped, as we see in verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. 
whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. Now, he, he asked for them to give him this coin this, that they would use to pay taxes. And I don't know if you can perhaps imagine the anticipation with the crowd. I mean, what's he going to do with this? And he finally re- receives it. And in my mind, I kind of imagine him considering the coin before he holds it up before these people. And, and he asks, doesn't he, whose likeness is on it? Whose inscription does it bear? They grudgingly answer Caesar's. I see that we've already put it up here for you. And so there is Tiberius Caesar, who would reign as emperor of the Roman Empire from 13 A.D. to 37 A.D. And so they say, well, whose likeness does it have? They all know. They say it has Caesar's. And, and there he is. But Jesus, you notice, he doesn't simply ask whose likeness. He asks What's the inscription on it? Now, you, I, you could kind of see the inscription on there. I don't know how good your Latin is, however. Um, it's, it's simply, I won't read it up there. I got it down on my notes. Di, uh, Tiberius Caesar, Divi Philius Augustus. Which means, translated, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the back, there's also... Uh, Inscription. You can read that, can't you? Maxim Pontiff. Or, in other words, High Priest. Now, I hope you can appreciate the irony of this. That Jesus holds up a coin that has a picture of Tiberius, and it says on the coin, King, Son of God, High Priest. This is the coin that they had to use. See, the, the Jews not only hated this tax, they hated the coin itself. And in light of this image, and in light of these words, Jesus explains... His answer in verse 25. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. When he said, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, I, I wonder if there was a devious smile broadening across their face. He did it. He said, Pay your taxes. I wonder if he paused. Let it sink in a little bit that Caesar does have authority. But he doesn't stop. As you notice, he goes on to give a second command. Not one, but two. Give to God what is God's. This clearly was not expected. They had not anticipated this kind of answer. His enemies had not, nor had anyone. For Jesus is, is in many ways calling for obedience in two different directions. Saying, comply with the government's authority and comply with God's authority. And in doing so, some commentators have said, Jesus offers the very first theory of limited government in the history of humanity. Others have disputed that idea, but certainly he is offering one of the first theories here that government does not have domain in every aspect of your life. In fact, his saying was so profound, you notice the response of those who asked it. Verse 26, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, that's the enemies, marveling at his answer, they became silent. I think this, this answer here is an incredibly loaded statement. And I, I think it helps set the foundation for a Christian's understanding of our allegiance to both God and to country, to both church and to state. And so what I want to do this morning, a little bit different than what we usually do, but I, 
I want to simply draw out five implications from verse 25 as to what Jesus is teaching us and how we interact with both God and our government. The first truth that I think Jesus helps us understand is that government has an authority. In fact, government has a divine authority even when that government is evil. You do, of course, understand that Rome and God are not aligned together. And yet Jesus says that Rome has a legitimate authority. He says, give to Caesar. Jesus explained that the state is legitimate, even when it's run by a man who thinks he's God. Why is it legitimate? Well, it's not legitimate because of some mythical social contract that we signed long ago. It's not legitimate because of some Marxist idea that government is inevitable. It's not legitimate because of economic necessity. It's not legitimate because people have a psychological need to be controlled, as some have suggested. It is not even legitimate because the will of the people have decided it is through their elections. The reason that government has legitimate authority is because God has ordained it. God ordains government. We see as much in Romans 13, when the apostle will write in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is why Jesus, when he'd be on trial in just a matter of days before Pilate, he would say, you would have no authority over me unless it were given to you from above. In other words, Jesus says, Pilate, you do have authority. I recognize that. But you only do because God has given it. And so the state or government exists by divine right. So you might ask, okay, why would God create an institution called government? Well, you do so because government, this might be hard to believe, but bear with me, is good. Government is good. And for at least two reasons. One, government, the government reflects, is a reflection of God's authority. In fact, all authority is a reflection of God's authority. Moms, your authority in your home over your children. Dads, your authority in your marriage. Elders, your authority in the church. Police, authority in our communities. Judges, authority over the law. Senators, authority in making law. All these, these people in authority... It's good. Authority is good because it reflects the way in which God has authority. At least it's supposed to. We are to exercise, if you have authority, and most of you do in some way or another, you're to exercise your authority in such a way that it shows that authority is good and that and that will make people more likely to follow God and come under His authority. That God's authority is trustworthy and kind and good. And therefore, our authority must be as well. And so I think government is good simply because it reflects God. The second reason the government is good is that it exists for the good of the people. Now, uh, Craig came and, and he read for us David's last words, 2 Samuel 23. And he was right to point out this is a uh, messianic word. But, but there's also truth about those who reign and those who rule. And David says, when one rules justly over men, reigning in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So David says a just governing authority is like the sunrise in the morning. Now many of you, of course, work in government, don't you? 
And, and if you work in government, and you work for the stability of our land, the prosperity of our land, the justice of our land, let me do something that perhaps doesn't happen for you often. Let me thank you for your work in our government. I believe you are doing a God-ordained work. I believe government has been given to us by God to make life stable, to allow us an opportunity to prosper. And so we, we thank you for what you are doing. Uh, please don't let that, by the way, I know some of you, you're going to let that go to your head. All right? And you're going to write me an email and say, are you telling me I'm like the sun on a cloudless day, Stephen? Um, okay, so just save the email and we'll just leave it at the thanks. Okay, thank you. Now, those of us who don't work in government, by God's grace, are called to pray for the government. Not that it's bad, it's just very hard, I trust. Um, what, what we do, as, as even Craig showed us this morning, we pray for those who do. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high position, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Christians, you are commanded by God to pray for your leaders. Pray that they would be just. Pray that they would govern through the rule of law so that we, God's followers, may live peaceful lives. Now, you know often governments are not just. And you know often that there is no rule of law in land. In fact, sometimes governments are really, really bad. Wicked. But I would suggest to you this morning, even a wicked government is better than no government. And if you're unconvinced by that, spend some time in Syria. Go to places in Libya or Somalia, and you can see what life is like without a government. A government comes and brings order, and that's why people who live in anarchy are often willing to welcome a dictator, simply because of the order in which he will bring the Roman government, of course, was abusive and evil, and yet it still provided some semblance of justice and order. And, 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 and so we are to understand that the even, even wicked governments have legitimate authority. In fact, the wicked government is not so much a reflection on the goodness of government, but on the governors, those who rule. I like what Richard Halverson, the former chaplain of the United States Senate, wrote. He explained, to be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state, just as men, because of sin, have abused and misused every other institution in, the, in history, including the church. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. Government has authority regardless of its morality. The second principle I think Jesus is teaching us here is that Christians are to be good citizens. This is simply by extension, even to a wicked or, or evil government, right? Because if the state is legitimate, therefore it has legitimate claims on our behavior. Jesus explains as much. Give to Caesar. Caesar asks for something that belongs to him. You are to give it to him. Paul would say as much in Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Peter would echo this in chapter 2 of his epistle. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors 
as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Christians, you put all these verses together, Christians are called to give to their government. Christians are called to submit to their government. Christians are called to be subject to their government. And even Christians are called to honor their government. Honor the emperor, Peter says. And so, Christians, your political participation, however you exercise it, should look to others like you are honoring those who have these positions, even if they are of the opposite political party or another political spectrum. You are to honor those in authority. Christians are to be law-abiding. We are to be profoundly obedient people to our rulers, including paying our taxes, right? Is that not the direct application here? Jesus says, give to Caesar what is his. Give him the tribute. We should pay our taxes. Now, there is no doubt that the government, our government in particular, does stupid things with our taxes. In fact, our government does evil things with our taxes. And Jesus says, pay your taxes. He even says, pay your taxes to Rome. Now, whatever you think of the American government, Rome was worse. In three days, they are going to murder the Son of God. And Jesus says, pay the taxes that will provide the salary for the men whose job it is to nail spikes into my hands and feet and hoist me on a cross. And by the way, Rome didn't stop there. It went on to kill the apostles and didn't stop there. went on to kill thousands and thousands of Christians. Eventually, Tiberius would die. A new emperor would rise. His name was Nero. He was far worse than Tiberius to Christians. And yet Paul, even under the reign of Nero, says, Romans 13, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. And so I'm telling you, if Christians pay taxes to that government, then certainly we should pay taxes to our own. You are not culpable to how those taxes are spent. Unless, by the way, you, that's your job to figure that out. And, and there's in, in some way a blessing in our democracy that we have at least theoretically some way to determine how tax revenue is spent. I'm telling you, you and I are culpable whether we pay or not. And so beware of an unsubmissive heart. For Christ's sake and for your own, pay your taxes. Third, Christ teaches us that an allegiance to government is limited by our allegiance to God. We obey Caesar, he says, but we don't always obey Caesar. What happens when Caesar forbids us to do what God demands? Or what happens when Caesar demands us to do what God forbids? What happens when Caesar demands everyone to bow before his likeness and declare publicly that Caesar is Lord like Emperor Decius did, who decided we're no longer going to kill Christians, we're going to convert them, and ordered everyone in his empire to sacrifice incense to the Roman gods and bow before a picture of Caesar to refuse was to be jailed, tortured, and often killed. What happens when that happens? Or what happens when Caesar says, you can't spank your child, but you can't abort it? 
Or what happens when Caesar says, you can't, if you're born into another religious family, you can't convert to Christianity. Or you can't proselytize. You can't tell other people about Jesus like what's happening in about 70 different nations around this world as we shall consider next week. What do you do then? Well, Christians must never obey Caesar if it means disobeying God. We call this civil disobedience. It's called civil, not because it's polite, by the way, though it probably should be. It's civil, uh, like we use in the term civil war, pertains to civics. It pertains to the government. We are to disobey our government when uh, government demands we do that which God forbids. And Jesus explains that you're going to need to be able to choose between these two allegiances. And so in the very next chapter in Luke 21, Jesus will say to his followers, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Some of you they will put to death. Now this statement only makes sense, right, if he's telling us not to give everything to Caesar that Caesar thinks is his. God is the supreme authority, and therefore we at times disobey the government, just as Peter did and John did. We talked briefly last week that about two months after Jesus ascended into heaven, or I'm sorry, two months after Jesus taught this, about 10 days or 20 days after he sent into heaven, Peter and John were in the temple, and there they healed this man, the man born um, lame, and, and, and they, he's begging for money, and Peter said, I don't have any money, but what I do have you, I give in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk, and the man gets up and walks, and, and everybody goes crazy, and Peter says, oh, by the way, you want to know how that happened? And he begins to preach the gospel, and these very same people that are harassing Jesus arrested Peter and John, and they, and they, they brought, him, brought them before the Sanhedrin, and they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter will respond, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. He's already made up his mind. They free him after threatening him, and he goes out, and you know what he does? He goes to the temple, and he preaches the gospel. They quickly rearrest him, put him in jail for trial the next morning, but while he's in jail, the angel appears opens the door, and what does he say? Run for it? No, he says, get back to the temple and start preaching. And so Peter and John and all the rest, they go back to the temple and preach. They wake up. The judges in the morning, they say, bring them forth. The jailer goes and says, they're no longer in prison. Well, where are they? They're out preaching Christ. And so they arrest them for a third time. And they say, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. In fact, we see this throughout the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down to an idol. Daniel refuses to stop praying to the one true God. Egyptian midwives will not carry out the evil plans of their rulers. We, we are to obey God rather than men when they come into conflict. And yet, listen, Christian, when the day comes, if it comes in your life where you have to make that decision, when you refuse to submit to the governing authorities or refuse to submit to any authority, you are to do it with humility. You are a forgiven sinner. And that ought to take the swagger out of any time you have to stand up against an authority. That ought to cause you to love your enemies as Christ loved you when you were his enemy 
And so part of the battle of obedience is becoming humble-hearted, enemy-loving, respect-giving followers of Jesus Christ. We should pray for wisdom and humility to understand when and how we resist the sins of our nation. The fourth truth that Jesus helps us understand is that church and state can be separate. He's teaching us here, I believe, that a secular state, a secular government is permissible. You notice he says, gives the Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. In other words, Caesar and God are not the same. Right? Caesar is not God. This is contradicting the very coin in Jesus' hand. The coin is wrong. Tiberius is not the son of the divine Augustus. And so Jesus presents this idea that has really established political thought, the political thought of the separation of church and state. To put it another way, the state's laws are are not always God's laws. And up to this point, the state and religion in every country in the world have always been intertwined. That the rulers are chosen by God, the rulers are sometimes often considered God's, The church and the state always go hand in hand. The state's laws are God's laws. And up to this point, all governments were theocracies. There was no such thing as a secular state. And therefore, the government had absolute authority because government and God overlapped. And Jesus says, no, you don't give government absolute authority. You give Caesar his money, but your true allegiance belongs to God. This is one of the main differences, one of the many differences, and a main difference between Christianity and Islam. Philip Yancey talks about a Muslim friend who said to him, when I read the Quran, I find nothing that tells me how to live as a minority. But when I read the New Testament, I find nothing that tells you how to rule as the majority. And I think that's right. Islam and the state are the same. They're always one. This is why you have Islamic nations. And and it's why you have in these Islamic nations, almost never you'll see a freedom of religion. And yet in in other nations, like our nation, when we understand that church and state are not the same, we can have things like the First Amendment, where we give people the the right to to worship how they want, even if that means they worship idols and worship false gods. to To be a Christian is to not, it's not like we live in the promised land. Do you understand that? Where, where, where the God's laws and the state laws are the same. We're, it's like living in Babylon. We live in Babylon. And what that means is we work for the peace of that city and the prosperity of that land, but we maintain our ultimate allegiance to God himself because we are exiles making our way through this world into God's kingdom. They're separate. So what is this, by the way, here's a little footnote. What does this mean for patriotism? The more I, I read, and I think this is kind of this emerging thought in Christianity, that some people are arguing, if you really love God, you cannot therefore love country. Because you can't, have, can't love two kings. This will be the argument. But I, I, think, I think they misunderstand. I think they're conflating God and, and government together. I don't think there's any contradiction to love God and love country. I, loving God and country is not like loving two lovers. It's more like I love a spouse, namely God, and I love a friend, namely the land in which I live. They're different. And so I would suggest, in case you've heard this idea, I think patriotism and love for God are not incompatible and very much can go hand 
and hand together. But the fifth truth that we see is that uh, Jesus teaches us that we are to give God our absolute allegiance. So give Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give God what belongs to God. So that's the question then, isn't it? What belongs to God? Well, Jesus asked for denarius and he has a question about it. Whose likeness is it on, does it bear, he says. Whose image is the Greek word icon? They all answer, it's Caesar. And so the coin bears Caesar's likeness. Therefore, it's his. Therefore, what? Give it to him if he asks. Well, does not this raise the question, well, then, what bears God's image? What bears God's likeness? You know the answer, of course. You do. And so Caesar gets his image, his coin, and God gets his image, namely you. In fact, you're a lot like that coin, aren't you? Faded, dirty, turning green, right? And still valuable, right? You want an old, faded $100 bill? Uh, Yeah, sure, of course you do. Right? Because this life is still worth a hundred dollars. We are tainted by sin. We have divided hearts. We are worn and we are twisted. And we are worth something to God. Because we are made in His image. And all of us, even as we celebrate these children this morning, you're made in the image of God and therefore have value and dignity and worth. And we are to give God what is His. You do so by giving Him him you a complete submission to him everything he has every access to every part of my life my question therefore are you giving to god what is his or are you holding back you keeping something from him i gave him this and i'll give him this but this is mine he doesn't get this over here if it is a sin to withhold taxes to the united states treasury how much more is it a sin to hold yourself back from God. Surrender to this good and gracious King. Give Him what belongs to His. Repent of that which you keep from His authority. For some of you, that might mean coming to Christ and bowing your knee to King Jesus. Surrendering your life to the crucified and risen Lord. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, what is it? What does the church confess through the mouth that Jesus is? Lord, He's my King. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. Amen indeed. Give Him what belongs to Him. Bow your knee to this King. In fact, you really have two kings on the stage, don't you? You have Tiberius and you have Jesus. You have two men who both say, I'm a king. Two men who both say, I'm the Son of God. Two men who both say, I am the High Priest. And yet one king has all the coins in the world. And the other king has none. Isn't that interesting? I mean, did Jesus reach into his pocket and say, okay, let me show you a denarius? No, he doesn't even have one. 
He has to ask for one. You have a king with all the coins in the world. And you have another king without a single coin to his name. You have a king with all the power in the world. And a king who has given it all away. How odd is that? You ever see a king like that? A king without wealth. A king without power. A king without recognition. You think about all the world's rulers. Think about all the senators and congressmen and presidents and premiers and all the rest. What do they all have in common? They all have wealth, they all have power, they all have recognition. And what is it, in a week from Tuesday, we're going to go and, and we're going to, Virginians at least, we're going to cast a vote for our governor. And you have two men who, who, are, who, who say, listen, I will do all these wonderful things for you. Right? I mean, your life will change if you elect me. So give me the power, I need power. And then I will use my power for your good. And Jesus shows up and says, I'll do all these wonderful things for you. Not if you elect me. But if you, not if, when you execute me. And when, when they do, Christ takes all that I deserve upon himself. He takes all that you deserve upon himself. Right? God, listen. God, he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. You know who doesn't get what is theirs? You. And you don't want it. You don't get, God does not give me what is mine. He instead gave to me what is Jesus's. Acceptance, adoption, and heir of all the world by His grace. For we have a King who took our poverty upon Himself so that He can make you rich. He went and died upon the cross and said, I will be punished for your sins. I will bear the wrath of God. I will triumph over the grave and I will take what is yours so I can give you what is mine. And if you understand that and that has been drilled into your heart and your soul to the degree in which you appreciate the gospel, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is to the degree in which you will gladly give to God what is His, namely you. He'll say, use me, however, because all I, I have all I need in Christ. I don't have to live for money anymore. I don't have to live for comfort anymore. I don't have to live for recognition. I don't have to use you. I can serve you because I have all I need in Jesus Christ. And so give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to give God what is God's. Because we have all that we could imagine in Christ. Our Father, we are thankful for your truth given to us by your Son. Help us, we pray, to please you in our interaction with the governing authorities that you have put over us. Help us to be good, honorable, obedient citizens, but ultimately hope us to be good and honorable, obedient followers of Christ. Help us to be free from the pull of disobedience, knowing that we have all we need in Jesus. Christ, we pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would grow in our appreciation and our treasuring of your acceptance and love. We promise you'll work in our life and in us and through us. Help that to free us and impact the way we live. We pray. This morning, Father, for our friends that are here, 
one or two or perhaps even ten, who is keeping Jesus at arm's length, those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus as King, will you not work in their hearts, showing them all they have to gain by coming to Christ, that you would save them and forgive them, adopt them into your family, and bring them into a new world where they might live in a place of joy and delight in your presence forever and ever. Help them to receive gladly the sacrifice of Christ, that they might know you, their Creator, as their God. We ask it all for the glory and in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.